Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Sasha Stone. I'm here with Ryan Adams, both of us from awardsdaily.com and Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com. This is our Halloween episode. We've decided to talk about the horror films we think have stood the test of time that are our personal favorites. And we're also going to ruminate on why it is that the Academy seems to not respect the horror genre enough to honor some of the best films ever made with Best Picture nominations. What we wanted to do was each of us talk about films uh, that, that we love. And I'm going to start. I, made a, I tried to make a list of my top five. And I ended up making uh, a list of more. And I'll just read those off. And then we'll go to my top five. And then we'll move on to Craig. So these are the movies that I picked out as, as films I consider the best horror films. And I hope I didn't leave any out. Um, but I might, I, I'm leaving open the option to change my mind and add more later. This is just a list for this day today, October 28th, 2010. So we have The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's brilliant film starring Jack Nicholson. Carrie, Brian De Palma's um, masterpiece with Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie. John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, Dracula, The Thing, also by John Carpenter, The Birds by Hitchcock and Psycho by Hitchcock, Poltergeist, Misery, Don't Look Now, 28 Days Later, The Silence of the Lambs, and Alien. So if I had to pick five of those, I went with Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, The Thing, Halloween, and Carrie. Sorry, I was taking notes because I think this might be on the on the exam, and I want to be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can I just say that uh, if you, for Silence of the Lambs, I'm not sure I wouldn't really include that so much in horror. I don't know why I wouldn't, but um, even though I know it's horrific, it's it's almost too. It's not. It doesn't have the the uh, supernatural or or otherworldly aspect enough for me to to qualify as horror. It's yeah. almost, it's more like a crime film. I agree with you that it's sort of on the line because, mm -hmm. um, but I did actually do a search of like the hundred greatest horror films of all time, just so that to make sure I could remind myself of things I didn't think of. Right. Um, and Sons of the Lambs is on every single one. So I figure it must qualify. I mean, I know it's yeah. not your traditional horror film, but I think especially in terms of the Academy, it, it counts as something that is kind of close to being horror, you know? The great thing about horror is that it kind of transcends other genres. You can mix different genres within the horror, um, the horror mode. And I think anything anything that scares you can technically qualify as horror. And Silence mm. of the Lambs. And I think the, is certainly the best ones, right? And the best horror movies uh, are the ones that touch on reality. I think and that uh, take place in in ter terrain that are familiar to us. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I know it's kind of a fine line between suspense and horror or crime and horror, but um, mm -hmm. like Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn, I guess you could consider that a horror movie, but it's more like a suspense film. But then so is Psycho and so is uh, Alien, really. I wouldn't say Alien does, though. I would say that Alien is about, um, um, I think that... Uh, in in the realm of outer space, it's a possibility. It's it's a, it's not so. It's not like a, a witch or a, or a vampire or something was in right. space, right? Well, I guess we all have kind of different ideas of what we think a horror movie is. 
So Craig says it's something that scares you, and, and Ryan's sort of more about the um, supernatural aspects, but not sci-fi. And for me, I guess it's anything that is scary, and there's a lot of blood and killing that goes on. Because, like, the thing, the thing has all those, all three of those things. It's scary, it has supernatural, and there's a lot of blood and a lot of killing going on. Mm -hmm. um, Halloween is not, well, I guess it could be supernatural if you consider that Mike Myers is some sort of a strange, um, it, you know, other. He's almost, he's almost, yeah, because he, he's, he's impossible to kill, I think it gives him a, a, an immortal kind of supernatural aspect to his character. You don't really know right. that, though, in the first Halloween. That's only sort of the mythology that built up around him over the from mm, launching from mm. the ending of the first movie, going through all the sequels, this idea that he was he was unstoppable. Although it's hinted at mm. in, the, in the first one because when she first throws him out the window and he's supposed to be dead and then she looks up and he's right. gone. So, right, that's yeah. at the very, very end. He gets right. shot and falls off the balcony and then they look over to see if he's still there and he's gone. Right, great movie. The great thing about Halloween, and it's also on, on my list of favored uh, horror films, is that it doesn't rely on gore or special effects or anything to scare you. In fact, um, when I first saw it, I think I was like 11 years old, and it was an edited version on NBC where they cut out the nudity, what little there was, and what little blood and violence there was, and it still scared the bejesus out of me. Mm. And it was the, the first movie that really, really scared me, and it, it it's dated somewhat. But um, it still has that same effect on me today. And it's not be because it's gross. It's because it's genuinely suspenseful and creepy. Um, it is suspenseful and creepy. There are some directors who can really do um, suspense. I have to interrupt myself because stop interrupting me. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I forgot two great horror movies on my list, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. The Exorcist is probably the best horror film ever made. So mm -hmm. I would like to add those as well in retrospect. So and just, Rosemary's Baby, I think, especially is one that is much more creepy than scary. It's right. just a creep factor all the way through without really being scary until the very last reveal. Right. Mm. I like the, the creepy ones get under my skin more and really stick with me more. They're creepy movies, even back as far as the silent era that 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 have images and sensations and atmosphere that that really give me, you know, chills. Like which ones are your favorites? Uh, the creepy ones I'm talking about, mm -hmm. maybe like um, Nosferatu or Vampire, Vampire, uh, Carl Theodore, Carl Theodore Dreyer. Let me say that again. Vampire by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Mm -hmm. uh, those have an atmosphere of, of dread about them that are really nightmarish. And um, without having anything explicitly violent or scary whatsoever, it's just a, a mood sort of thing. And Rosemary Baby has that. Diabolique, I think, is a really good uh, example of that, too. Hmm. Um, no, keep talking. I love this, this stuff. It's <laughs> like you know so much more uh, about movies than I do, right? Not so. really. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, find some that haven't been mentioned before because all of yours, on, on your list of 12, I think probably my top five would be on that list, too. So I was just trying to pick up some spares. That, um, but anything you, you can, uh, uh, yeah, some spares or if you guys want to, like Craig just did with Halloween, if you want to illuminate on the things that I wrote down or talk about your own list or, you know, each movie that we talk about, maybe we can pick like five movies we want to talk about today 
and then just talk about okay, those? Yeah, or do well, you guys like to you just know, one sort thing of... About, one thing that, that I think connects Psycho and The Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs uh, that we might not think about when we think about Psycho and The Exorcist, but Psycho and The Exorcist were both based on true incidents. They were both based on facts. And, and, and really, Silence of the Lambs is related to Psycho in, in as much as they're both um, based on a character, Ed Gein. He was a serial killer right. who lived in Minnesota in the 1950s. He he was like a cannibal, and he he would uh, skin his victims and and dismember them, and this was a true story that happened. Robert Block, who wrote the novel Psycho, lived in Minnesota, so he's really familiar with this guy, and that's what he based Psycho on, mm. and it's very much the same uh, story as as Silence of the Lambs. And of course, Silence of the Lambs later was able to make it much more explicit. But that really creeps me out, the fact that these things really happened. And to know that about them, even though you might not know it when you see the movie and you don't even have to know it to be scared by them, there's something about the fact that they're grounded in reality that comes through whether you know the background of the stories or not. Um, right. The, it's so true with Silence of the Lambs especially. I mean, they did do something kind of different with that in terms of the sexuality of the character because he... James Gum, <laughs> James mm -hmm. Gum. He was like a a transvestite, but if and and he the the film kind of took some heat for that. But if you listen really carefully to the script, I know almost every line to the movie, so I, I know it pretty well. Mm -hmm. They never actually say that he's he's gay or that he's a a transsexual. They say he's trying to be that because that's what mm -hmm. he thinks he should be, but they never right. say he actually is a transvestite. So there's a big difference between that. He's a guy who bops around different identities. Why they chose to use transvestite of all things, I think is just only related to the fact that Ed Gain um, actually kept jars of his victims' organs in his house and ate them. And I think their skin too. I think he did the same thing with the, the skin. Same, like he yeah. had he like made uh, made outfits out of their skin or something right. or and it was, sweaters or something. Yeah, it was women and he liked to dress around in their yeah. skin. So it's possible that. But Ed you know Gain what's odd about that is that even though Silence of the Lambs takes heat for that because of uh, the uh, portrayal of, of a gay person as the as so as being so evil, Psycho doesn't suffer the same way. But the fact is that when Alfred Hitchcock cast that movie, he was well aware that Aunt, Aunt, um, Anthony Perkins was gay. That was a that was an open secret in Hollywood. Oh no, he kidding! Cast I didn't specifically, know that. Yeah, he was he cast him. His, specifically for that reason and he he toyed with that idea he liked the kinky aspect of that no kidding and, and of, yeah and anthony anthony uh, perkins is in a way he's transvestite in that movie too right of course he is because he dresses up as, as his mother right. and hitchcock got off on that he 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 enjoyed anthony perkins a lot he, he liked him as a person they hung out together and everything but he also he just thought it was really strange What's a little bit interesting to me about Psycho um, and, the, and the twisted sexuality of it is that the same year, um, uh, Michael Powell came out with Peeping Tom, which also had um, kind of conflated strange sex with violence. But the public reaction was very different. Psycho obviously is embraced as a classic. I think at the time it may have been controversial, but it certainly didn't harm um, Hitchcock's career, whereas for all intents and purposes, uh, Peeping Tom pretty much ended Michael Powell's career as a director. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. 
That's, yeah, that is They're true. Both... But I think that Hitchcock was so subtle about it. And he and from all reports, he never talked to Anthony Perkins about this. And I, as as backup for, for claiming this, because I, I don't want people to think that I'm just, you know, fabricating this out of my own imagination. But Hitchcock mm -hmm. has, did this before. He did it with Rope. This is a little bit off track. Remember Rope um, the that was based on the Chicago um, um, murders? Um, what was that story? What was the real-life case that was based Leopold on? Leopold and Loeb. Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, right. Um, when Hitchcock cast Rope, he knew that Farley Granger was gay. And the, the, the screenwriter who wrote Rope was Arthur Lorenz. And Arthur mm. Lorenz and Farley Granger were boyfriends at the time of that movie. Oh, no kidding. And, yeah, and Hitchcock knew that and went to dinner with him. And, and Arthur Lawrence has written about this in his memoirs that he could tell that, that Hitchcock was just tickled by the whole idea of that. Oh, it's so interesting. Well, you know, Hitchcock has a lot of the same sort of qualities that you could say Norman Bates had in a way um, of being really fascinated by women, not even just sexually, but fascinated by things like their clothes and you know, exactly the way they wear their hair and suits and, you know, kind of like the character in Vertigo, Jimmy Stewart's character in Vertigo. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, who was right. just, she, it had to be just right. And, you know, it, it's funny to think of, of you know, because um, Anthony Perkins watches her through the, the little peephole. You know, he he's mm -hmm. watching her undress. He's And you, you assume, you could take it either way, but you assume that he's, you know, he's getting aroused. He was aroused by her, they say at the end. But was uh -huh. he really aroused by her or was he just fascinated um, in watching this woman, um, you know, take off her clothes and get in the shower? I don't know. It's 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 an interesting idea to wonder where his, you know, his pathology came from. It's a I fetish thing almost because, like you said, Hitchcock was really fascinated with anything that was a little bit anything naughty. That's another thing about Psycho that we don't think about now because it's so commonplace. But that, I think, it was the first time that, that a toilet had been shown on screen. Not only to show a toilet, but to show a toilet flushing. They almost didn't get that passed by the MPAA. They wanted mm. them to cut that out because it was you, you just didn't show that on, on screen. You didn't show that in any movie. Isn't that and so funny? they had to fight for that. I didn't know and that. And so all the, any kind of thing like the bathroom humor or anything that was naughty or a little bit that you weren't supposed to talk about, Hitchcock really got off on all that kind of stuff. And about the clothing, they went to Phoenix, Arizona and went around the streets and took photographs of the way that real people on the streets there dressed. And he talked to Edith Head about the costumes and, and they decided that they wanted to buy uh, they wanted to buy uh, Janet Lee's clothes off the rack. They didn't want anything that looked like it was too couture for her. They wanted to buy her clothes off the rack. Hmm. And even her lingerie at the beginning, the first scene where they've had that, that lunchtime tryst, you know, yeah. where the movie opens and uh, she's in the motel, in the hotel with her boyfriend. Right, right. Uh, what's his name? Who plays him? I forget. The I guy's forget name. his You know what I'm too. talking about. Yeah. That when when they, they were going to, they thought, well, maybe we need some really sexy lingerie. We're going to have to design some lingerie for her and some kind of Victoria's Secret thing. And Hitchcock said, no, 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 I want, I want bras and panties and slips that women all across the country are going to recognize as something they can buy at the department store. I want them to identify with her that much. So that way they're really going to be connected to her. When, when Right. And that's, that's a great observation. And then there's the whole other level of Hitchcock movies, which is about the obsession with the mother, which is, you know, it's so strong in Psycho. It's not so strong in Silence of the Lambs. It's because that film is so um, paternal. There's so much more male energy in it than there is female energy. 
Because the menace mm -hmm. in Psycho is female. And the menace in Silence of the Lambs is definitely male. It feels very male. Um, so I think that they're very different that way. Um, but moving on to, to another film that I think we should really talk about, I, I'd like to mention this. I didn't mention it on my list, but I think it's interesting to talk about it. Have you guys ever seen The Innocents, that movie from 1961? Yeah, I just mentioned that just today on the side because I, we were talking about the BFI, and the BFI this year has restored The Innocents, and it's on blue right now, and it's a spectacular looking. It, it looks so great. Um, so, Have you ever yeah, seen The seen Innocents, it. Craig, that film? Never, never seen it. Oh, it's really interesting. It's it's this strange ghost story. Um, Deborah Kerr, it's based on a book by um, Henry James, right? And she goes to this mansion and there are these kids there who are seemingly possessed by ghosts or by, you know, this couple, this couple who was passionately in love. And you never really know if the woman is imagining it or if it really, if they really are possessed. But it's really strange because she starts to be like, you know, this little boy starts to like come on to her in a way as if a, a man was inside of him. So it has that whole other level of, of, you know, forbidden kind of child molesting that um, obviously is part, probably part of the reason why the film hasn't really been, isn't really well known because it is so creepy and strange, but it never really did takes. Did you say that you saw that once in, on te television and they had actually cut so much of that out that the movie didn't even really make sense or had lost some of its power? Or maybe that's me. I think that's me. I saw yeah. it on television a long time ago. No, it must and, have and been I didn't you. understand what everybody's making such a big deal about because they had lost all of that. They had to cut it out for television right. for some reason. But it's all just insinuated. I think the best horror films are ones that do insinuate rather than just show the gore. Because mm -hmm. if you look at even a film like Halloween, which has a lot of gore, the scariest part of that movie is the first 45 minutes where Mike Myers is just kind of hanging around. And the scariest shots in it are not when someone gets stabbed and killed. Not at all. They're more like when uh, they're walking down the street and, and the a girl says, you know, hey, asshole, or whatever she says, and the car just stops. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. You know, something as as simple as that. It's scarier when the, the little boy is teasing, knocks over the kid's pumpkin and he runs right into Mike Myers and he looks like the boogeyman. I mean, little things like that. It takes such a talented director, John Carpenter, to be able to pull out that kind of suspense. There's another moment like that frozen when the car jolts to a stop. There's a moment like that in the exorcist where the where the pendulum pendulum on the clock stops mm. when they mention this and they like that little idol they're looking at. Just those, just those little moments of when uh, something, the the reality of the world um, goes off kilter. It's like a clock stopping. Thing. Time, time, time comes to a standstill. Let me say about The Exorcist, the scariest part of that movie for me has nothing to do with the demon possession or the pea soup or the or any of that. It's the scariest part is that scene in the hospital where she's being prodded and examined and. And they're trying to figure out what's wrong with her. There's something about that sequence that is extremely creepy and uncomfortable to me. I'm not sure what it is. Did anybody else have that reaction? Absolutely. You're talking about when she gets the spinal tap, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I have heard too that that they 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 say that people fainted uh, during the Exorcist when it was shown in theaters, and it was during those parts. It was during the hospital scenes that that, that people were passing out to see the medical procedures. Yeah. Right? That I'll just say about The Exorcist that I was a kid when that movie came out and I did see it in the theater. And I've never, ever been so scared in my life at a film as The Exorcist. And 
to this day, I can. it's hard for me to even watch it because I still think that image of Linda Blair with the devil raging inside her with her yellow eyes twisting her head around has to be the single scariest thing ever put on film, hands mm-hmm. down. How old were you when you saw it? What do you say? Well, 1973, right? That's when it came out, and I was born in 65, so... Right, so that's another thing, too, to see a kid, to be a kid, and to see that happening to a kid... At it's that a, same it, age, that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, too, that that's, a, that's one of the last taboos that horror has dealt with. And, and like you, you mentioned it uh, about the innocence, that they were playing around with sort of some, some touchy subjects there with uh, the relationships with the children, and they sure you know, push that to the extreme with the exorcist. And they did it again this year with let me in, you know, the children who are, who are vampires. And there was a lot of sexuality in let me in too. Oh, how so? I, I haven't, I didn't, I never got around to seeing it, but I did hear there was some sexuality. Uh, it's, it's a gender identification thing and a gender confusion thing. I mean, you know, I think, didn't you pick up on that, Greg? A little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the whole, just the whole fact that I mean, here's here's a here's a kid, the the girl who's who's become a, who's turned into a vampire when she's 12 years old. So she forms these relationships with kids, and falls in love with kids, or, or causes children to fall in love with her to help her out. But the, they grow older. The, the the boys grow older, and as they grow older, that gets weirder and weirder, right? Because she stays young. Mm, right. So that, that has a creepy aspect built into it right there that she, she attaches herself to these kids that are her age and she stays young and they get older. Mm. And that's like, a, you know, in, inherently strange right there. It's creepy they, from the start because she's, she's in a young person's body, but she's like 200 years old or whatever it is. So she's right. technically yeah. an adult who's having these relationships with little kids, even though she looks like a little yeah. kid. That's right, too. That's another, that's the other side of it. That's the flip side of it. So do you guys think that The Exorcist could be made today? I really don't think it could. I don't think there's any way that they would let it. I don't know how they got away with it in 1973. Do you? How did they ever get away with that? How did they let a girl with a crucifix say, let Jesus fuck you? (laughs) Can you imagine what the tea partiers would say about that if it came out today? It just would never happen. It would never happen. And there's so many other things in it, like when she pees on the rug, you know? I know, Craig, that you have, you're, you're a stickler about uh, not wanting to tamper with the movie after it's been uh, released in theaters. You don't like the idea too much of directors doing having second thoughts or reworking their own material. But I will right. say about The Exorcist, you know, they have come out with this with the uh, what they call the version you've never seen. When they first did that, I didn't see it for some reason, but I had seen it for the first time this past week because I saw the new Blu-ray edition of The Exorcist. And the, the parts that they added back to the film that were not present in 1973 really expand the movie and, and make it, it, caught, it makes a lot more sense in a lot of ways and improves it in several ways, I think. And one of the things they may have had to cut out in 1973 that was just too extreme um, that I don't remember the scene being in, in, in the original version. One of the first times that she goes to the hospital for the medical procedures, um, the doctor, after he's done some tests on her, he takes Reagan's mother into the consult consultation room and says, um, telling her what he thinks the problem is, that it's nerves and they're going to prescribe some sedatives and stuff like that. But anyway, he says, you know, your daughter has uh, quite a vocabulary. She's got quite a, uh, 
uh, shocking vocabulary. And her mother says, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. She says, he says, well, give, she said, give me an example. And he says, well, she said, uh, when I was examining her, he, she told me, get your goddamn hands off my cunt. <laughs> and, and, and Reagan's mother just laughs. She has to put her hand over her mouth and she laughs. She thinks it's funny because at first she can't believe it. And then the other part of her is just thinking, oh, I can't believe my little girl has, you know, where'd she ever, ever hear a word like that? And it's funny in that scene, and it's played for last, but then just one or two scenes later, there's Reagan with the crucifix and, and dragging her mother's head and saying, lick my cunt, lick my cunt, right? Oh, my God. And, and she and says, do you, you know what she so did? it's not so funny anymore. Yeah, your cunting daughter or whatever, you know. That's right, yeah. And it's like, how, how did they do that? And I know that they had to cut part of that out in 1973, but it makes, so it has a lot more impact with that scene left in. Yeah. I, I didn't know that scene was there. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen it, uh, the extended yeah. version. So I only know that they did. They they had that really creepy shot of her walking down the stairs backwards as a spider. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? I don't think I'm going to see that. That's <laughs> what I thought too. It. And that's why when I they, you could find those added scenes on YouTube and everything. I thought, ah, you know, I don't think that adds anything. But in the context of the movie, it really does. It all has a, has a much better flow. And there are some things that, that, that really don't make any sense the first time around. Like at one point, I think in the original version, uh, Reagan's mother says, you know, you'll be okay. Just make sure you take your pills. And you're thinking, what pills? What mm, pills right. is she talking about? Right. Because the, the scene about the hospital has been left out where the doc doctor prescribes the medication for her. Yeah. Um, the thing about The Exorcist that is so great, other than the fact that it just stays true to the story completely. I mean, that movie went for it. They went for it and they told the exact story that um, is in the book and they really didn't hold back. And so you got to admire that. But um, what makes it a great horror film, I think, besides the terrifying shots of Reagan possessed, which nobody has ever matched and nobody ever will match, was mm. the mood. And I think a really great horror movie has to be able to set the mood um, even if it's some dumb modern, you know, um, like Wolf Cre Wolf's Creek, you know, that that Australian um, mm -hmm. torture porn movie where all those girls were picked off one by one. You know, there has to be a, a great established mood so you know where you are. And that helps freak you out, you know. And The Exorcist, it's there's so many themes going on at once. You know, you have the, pr the priest. um his life and you've got the uh you know the max von sidow's character's background um and you've got ellen burston's strange acting career worked in um the and the fact that they're a divorced family and that you know the father's kind of a son of a bitch and you know um all of those things sort of help to make it ripe for the girl to be possessed in the first place but they also mm -hmm. take you into that world where you are just you know, from the very beginning, you're just something is off about all three of those stories. There's just some crazy thing that's off, you know, and little by little you start finding out what it is. I think that any horror movie that, that does that will succeed, like Psycho, like Silence of the Lambs, like Carrie, even Dracula and Frankenstein, you know. Well, within the first five minutes of The Exorcist, she's up in the attic looking for the whatever scratching around up there at the sounds of rats or whatever, right. and the and the strain. And one of the very first subliminal images they, that Friedkin inserted into the movie is in the attic. There's a there's a there's a skull or 
uh, or ghoulish head that appears in one of the, the um, inserted subliminal images up in the attic. And so already they're, ha they're playing with their head up there. Right. Can I say one thing about the piece of trivia about the casting for um, for The Exorcist? Yeah. Um, when William Peter Blatty wrote the movie, he had Shirley MacLaine in mind when he wrote the the part of the actress, and she was originally he wanted her to play the he wanted her to play the role. He wrote it for her. Hmm. He based that movie on her. He based the character on her because she was his next door neighbor. No he kidding. Was a, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that's great, but I don't think she would have made as good of a. I think Ellen oh no, Burstyn, I don't think so either. Yeah, yeah. It, it would have been strange. It would have been bizarre. It would have thrown it off. I think. I do too, because she just, doesn't have the quite the same edge that Ellen Burstyn has. She doesn't. Mm -hmm, right. Ellen mm -hmm. Burstyn has this kind of strange quality about her, with her, you know, her flared nostrils and her tone of voice. She's got kind of a school teacher thing going on, but she can really hit those notes of intensity that I don't think Shirley MacLaine can. She's different. They're different. They're both great, but right. Well, can I tell one of my little boring background stories about The Exorcist? Yeah. <laughs> Since we're on the topic of William Peter Blatty, um, he had been a screenwriter. He was. Uh, he worked with Blake Edwards. Uh, he had written uh, A Shot in the Dark, which was like one of those um, Pink Panther movies, and a couple of other kind of light uh, comedies. And he he really wanted to be doing more serious writing. He when he was in college in. Uh, he went to school in Washington, D.C. in college. I think he might have, may have been Georgetown. And um, there was a story in the Washington Post that he read when he was in college about a kid in St. Louis who was possessed. And it was a pretty big story across the country back then because it was just so unusual. Nobody had ever heard of anything like that before. There was a, this 14-year-old boy who was possessed, and they, they called the Catholic Church in to have an exorcism, exorcism performed on him. This boy... Um, there were witnesses who said that his bed shook and furniture moved across his room. There were welts that came up on this kid's chest and stomach and go to hell and and a, an arrow drawn down to his penis that said exit and all this weird stuff. These 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 welts and the appearing on his body with these messages that people you know this is documented apparently mm. this is documented by the church and William Peter Blatty wanted to write a nonfiction account of this and he interviewed the priest involved and 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 the catholic church connected him with the family so that um that he could interview them too but at the last minute everybody started backing out especially the catholic church said we don't want we don't want to be associated with this book so we're not going to cooperate anymore and so he had to ditch the idea and so it wasn't until like 25 or 30 years later that he was able to to turn it into a script and turn it into a screenplay. And he wanted to change it as much as possible, like make the boy into a girl and stuff like that. So that there, so that because these people were still alive and he didn't want to, they had already been traumatized enough, but mm. uh, it's a pretty strange story. Really. They, um, this, this kid had had an aunt who was into the occult and they had sort of a strange relationship that's, um, we don't really know of course, but I mean, this, they supposedly had a pretty strange, strange relationship and she had recently died and it was right after she died that he started having these convulsions and, and, and started speaking in Latin. He started speaking Latin, which he'd never studied before, this wow. little teenager, you know. And so that, to me, really makes the story so much creepier and strange that something like that really happened in reality. And this is where William Peter Blatty got the idea, the mm. fact that it's not just fabrication. Yeah, and maybe that adds to a horror movie like we were talking about in the beginning, that if there are true elements to it... Um, you know, you're you're always spending. You, you maybe walk out of it thinking, 
there's a possibility that this really could happen. I know that as a kid, mm. I was raised as an atheist and I'm still an atheist. And so naturally, if you don't believe in God, how can you believe in the devil? But that movie made it mm. so real that it just mm. seemed likely to me, much more likely that there was a devil than that there was a God. And of course, Reagan's mother is an avowed atheist in the movie too. Ellen Burstyn is an atheist and talk, they talk about that. They make a big point of it. She even says something like, what are you suggesting that I go consult a witch doctor? You know, and cause, right. because it's just so outlandish to her. She doesn't believe that, like you said, she doesn't believe in God. So how could she believe in, in Satan? So we were going to also talk about the exorcist in terms of the Oscars. And judging by what I've seen, looking back through Oscar history, uh, other than Silence of the Lambs, which won very, very big, um, the exorcist, like Ryan pointed out, had 10 nominations. Um, it didn't win best picture, but, for a movie like that to be nominated at the Oscars is pretty rare, um, considering they, they very rarely um, honor great films just simply because they're horror. They have, they have a genre um, phobia about horror movies and action mm -hmm. movies a lot of times, but and comic book movies and fantasy, although Lord of the Rings kind of broke that taboo. For one thing, I really don't think, well, I'm, I can't say that I don't think that there are really that many that are that good because obviously we've been talking about several that are but i think that there's a there's a for the oscars they like to maybe horror movies don't seem important enough important enough in in a they don't feel relevant in the way that we look even even today when we talk about the movies that are that are up for consideration this year we we look for ways that they have relevance to current events or the or the what's going on in society with horror movies, we don't really realize how important they are until maybe five or ten years later and looking back on them and see how important they are in the, in insofar as a part of film history. Mm. Um, they are thrill rides and they're exciting when we see them, but we don't really understand how important they are until we look back on them. I'm going to I can use it, Psycho as an example. Um, it was such a, a departure for Hitchcock, you know, for four or five movies in a row he had done um what rear window and vertigo and to catch a thief and north by northwest which were these big glamorous technicolor glossy um um movies that mm -hmm. um were pretty you know flashing and, and pretty to look at and all of a sudden he goes into this really almost low budget black and white dingy uh, setting and it threw people off so much that no one knew how to react to it. Time magazine um, really panned it and said mm. that uh, that it was um, nauseating. And uh, I, forget, I can't I can't think of all the quotes, but they they really they gave it a really harsh review. They said it was uh, um, that it was really a misfire for Hitchcock, and people were really disappointed in it. Mean, but then five years later, when when Polanski came out with the Repulsion, the same critic in Time magazine compared Repulsion to Psycho and said it's reminiscent of the classic Psycho. So mm -hmm. in just five years, he, he had changed his opinion of Psycho com completely from being nauseating to being a classic. So that's how we reevaluate movies, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's come up on the site recently, too, in discussion about how pe you, people change their minds about the way they feel about movies and whether what status they have in cinema history. But in the same way that, that Psycho didn't get respect as a horror film, none of Hitchcock's movies really got respect. 
very few of them were ever nominated for Best Picture. Mm. And and none of, they never won very many major awards. Maybe Rebecca back in the 40s. Rebecca the won Best Picture. That's the only one, though. But, um, yeah. but yeah, so what do they know? The you, Academy? Can, you can thank Selznick for that probably as much as Hitchcock. It was probably Selznick's reputation that allowed that one to get an Oscar. It wasn't Hitchcock wasn't really appreciated until... Like you were saying, his his career was reappraised um, somewhat later. And the great thing about Selznick Hitchcock was like the uh, Scott Rudin of the 1940s, right? And the and the great thing about Hitchcock and and all directors should heed this advice is that he never made movies for the Oscars, and if he had, he would not have been a good director. And mm-hmm. it is just in retrospect we're able to see what a great filmmaker he is and i think there are a lot of directors today who fit into that category david cronenberg is one Mm -hmm. um totally overlooked and misunderstood by the academy and john carpenter is another because he's a not as well respected director and he certainly deserves it brian de palma um i would also kind of put in that although he's sort of burned out i guess but I would just like to add a couple of films to the list that uh, Sasha started earlier. Um, I want to give a shout out to the Evil Dead trilogy, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness, starring the great Bruce Campbell. Um, I sort of discovered those in high school when I was a, a, a budding ironist, heavily into David Letterman and, and just the whole ironic distance to everything, and those movies kind of fit right in with that. Um, but what I really prefer are movies that, that actually are scary. Neither of those are particularly scary. Those, those they're more funny. Um, but one movie that I just rewatched recently is um, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Usually I kind of steer clear of remakes, but sometimes they're worthwhile. If they can upgrade special effects or upgrade themat- thematically, then it's perfectly worth doing a remake. And the original was clever and subtle, but it was kind of like an extended... Um, episode of the twilight zone whereas david cronenberg took it and and pretty much made it his own completely his own movie um the original was really a b movie i mean it had the b movie quality and a b movie look and it was it, looking back on it, it's a little bit corny in a way i mean especially the ending although it, it's creeping and, and and strange to have the little fly in the web with, with the human head saying help me help me you know that's it's a little bit slightly corny and and the remi- the remake is far from corny hmm. yeah the remake is is downright horrifying whereas like like i said the original was clever but it, it, like you say it's a little a little bit dated um the the remake um, a lot of people are bothered by the special effects in it. It is pretty gory, a lot of um, gruesome body transformation horror. Um, but that's, you know, that fits right in with Cronenberg's with thing. Um, and what I really like about it is that it's, it's not so much about a man who has been turned into a monster. It's more about a man as he's becoming a monster. And the cool part about it is that there's a brief glorious moment for him where the Jeff Goldblum character has already been crossed with the fly, but he hasn't completed the transformation, but it actually improves him, um, makes him really good in bed, makes him strong and agile. Um, And it seems like he's a little bit smarter as well. So basically, for a a brief moment there, it makes him everything that he was not before, but maybe kind of wanted to be before it all starts um, kind of going downhill from there. Um, and and when it does start going downhill, it actually becomes tragic. Um, th- there's a there's a strong um, current of, of pathos with that character. Um, you, you kind of got to like him before he starts to turn into a monster. 
And there's a scene after he's had a big falling out with um, Gina Davis because his personality is changing. He finally realizes that he's kind of on a dead end and that bad things are going to happen. So he asks her to come back to see him. And he's already looking pretty disgusting. I can't remember right. if his fingernails and teeth have, yeah. had come out at that point or not. But um, And he admits that he's um, about how fearful he is. And she kind of hugs him. And it's a really kind of a moving moment. And then right after that, he tells her that she has to go because he knows that he's going to hurt her. Mm. And uh, she's crying and she leaves. And, of course, eventually that does come to pass. But it's just um, one of my favorites all, all around. I hadn't thought about it from the from the perspective of having the enhanced uh, uh, powers and everything before now until you mentioned it. But you're right about that. And it's almost like a, a superhero movie, only a superhero gone bad when his powers, the dark side of being a super, of having superpowers. Exactly. And that was brought so, out a little bit in the, in the dark, in uh, not in the Dark Knight, but in the second Spider-Man movie, or one of the right. Spider-Man movies, when he's right. where he's black Spider-Man. And it, yes, exactly. It also, to use one of Craig's terms, it also fits right into the Cronenberg wheelhouse of kind of monster men, of men who are kind of consumed by their own, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, tragic flaw or... Uh, maleness. <laughs> yeah. Consumed by their own maleness. Exactly. Hyper by their, by their obsessions as well. And their obsessions. And it, it does kind of consume them. I mean, all of his, well, many of his, his leading characters are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one thing that I, I really like about it is that it, um, even though it's riffing off other material, it, it's, it's definitely a David Cronenberg movie. Nobody else could have made that movie exactly mm-hmm. the same way, nor would have. Right. And, and you know when you're going into a David Cronenberg movie that, that, they will this this character usually it's the male but sometimes it's the female that they're going to go past the point where they can maintain their sanity at some point you know it's going to move past that and i'm always looking forward to it because i know that it's he he presents such a great alternate reality but the alternate reality is always very like authentic as to what the characters are are going through inside internally Uh, And I think he's great at that. And that's what the fly is. It's such a great expression of his internal struggle. It's authentic. It's always authentic and it's always uh, convincing. But at the same time, unless a horror movie is a little bit borderline believable to me, unless I can think that this might actually happen, it's it's a little bit hard for me to be actually scared by it because um, I have to have the grounding in reality before it can, I can, before it taps into my fears um, but one thing about The Fly, and you also mentioned the Evil Dead trilogy, I'm going to try to stitch some things back together because we've been all over the map talking about a bunch of different movies bouncing around so much. I'm going to try to connect some things here. One thing about The Fly, the the uh, the special effects and in Evil Dead too, that's um, always prominent in horror movies is the makeup. That's been a that's a thread that runs through all the movies that we've talked about, and it goes all the way back to horror movies as far back as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Frederick March won Best Actor for um, the original hmm. uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And um, so it's there's a, a long reputation. Then Lon Chaney in, uh, in uh, Phantom of the Opera, the, the, the makeup effects in that. And then all the way through, there were makeup effects in Psycho with the skull and the, uh, the uh, preserved um, mummified mother in the basement. Hmm. And, the, of course, the makeup in The Exorcist. And so that's a running thread that goes through all these movies. I'm trying to think also, and they, and those things get recognized by the Academy. We can also try to tie this into the Oscars if we possibly can, and try to think what is it about these? What is it about a horror movie that the Oscars sit up and, and notice? What do they take notice of? Hmm. 
Um, yeah, and I, I think the answer to that is that they prefer, if the story is is, boom, is moving as well, if it's a drama that mm -hmm. works, and I think The Fly does, actually, and I think that a lot of Cronenberg films do, and I think they have sort of a, um, you know, just an automatic prejudice against them, especially films that, that do require a lot of makeup. They sort of have a standard prejudice against fantasy and horror, um, and these are films that do transform people with makeup and costumes to, to not look like people. They seem to like movies where people look like people. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's a really good point. I was looking at the, uh, trying to think of the, the movies that have been nominated for the most Oscars that are horror movies. And we skipped a couple that are, that really, I can't believe that we forgot about, we forgot about Jaws. Right. Right. One of the best and, ever made. Yeah, exactly. And we forgot to mention the sixth sense. Too, which I would definitely qualify as a horror movie. It's a ghostly, uh, you know, not it doesn't have a lot of special effects, but it's definitely supernatural, right? And those movies, along with, with along with the others that we talked about, were nominated for Best Picture. And what is it that Jaws and The Exorcist and The, the Sixth Sense and Aliens? What's another thing they have in common? They were huge blockbusters, right? They were enormous blockbusters. Right. I look at the. Uh, box office mojo for The Exorcist because I was just curious what it earned back in 1973 and then back in 73 it earned I think something like 200,000 250,000 domestic but adjusted for inflation $879,000 I mean $879 million right <laughs> yeah. $879 million. That's insane. and so that that's that's more than Avatar that's more than Avatar made right. domestically yeah, it was it was a big deal. I remember it being big a big deal because of the box office. But I also remember the sixth sense in terms of the Oscars. It was one of the things that got kind of got me fascinated by the race because that year I remember the Green Mile and the Sixth Sense were two movies that people did not expect would get nominations because they were such big Hollywood genre movies and they made so much money. Mm -hmm. But the Sixth right. Sense in particular was one of those cultural phenomenons that just I think it made something like three hundred million. Um, yeah. which, which at the time was a really serious amount of money. Nowadays, it's you know less than Toy Story three made. But Ryan was talking about makeup, and and this ties in with the awards. The winner for best makeup in 1981 was Rick Baker for An American Werewolf in London, and to mm -hmm. me that was mm -hmm. one of the seminal makeup effects movies. And um, I have to say, as much as technology has changed, and as great as the stuff they do with computers is there's something organically satisfying to me about old-fashioned latex and makeup that and and the um amazingly imaginative things that they were able to do with that and american marvel from london i think is is if not not quite the acme of that technology but it's certainly up there yeah i agree with you that's a that's I, a really good point. I, and back to The Exorcist, too. Sorry, I've interrupted you there twice in a row there, Sasha. Okay. Go ahead. No, I was interrupting <laughs> you, too. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I have to adjust my seat. I don't want to make noise while you talk, so go ahead. Okay. I was going to say about The Exorcist, that's one thing that William Friedkin wanted to be sure that he, he maintained the reality of the effects. They didn't call them CGI back then. They didn't have CGI, but they called them optical effects. They would do effects in the camera, and they would do effect, effects in the in post-production, and they called right. them optical effects. And he didn't want to do any of that. He wanted everything to be done phys with physical effects on the set. He had um, um, Linda Blair suspended from piano wire when she would levitate and things like that. And the uh, 
vomiting effect. They had a, like a harness thing that went in her mouth with a tube that ran back behind her hair and it was all covered up with makeup and that was actually spewing from her mouth and everything. You know, that was all. And that really, like you said, that adds so much to the substance of the horror when you can, when you, you really sense that that's really happening. You know, mm. the, the, the brain picks up on that. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, you don't automatically put up that barrier that says this is fake, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Even if it obviously is, like if you look at the uh, the American Werewolf from London effects today, especially, you can tell that there are effects, but there's still something, there's a tactile quality to them that, as realistic as the computer stuff is, still doesn't quite have. There's a, a gravity to it that seems somehow more believable. I mean, the transformation of him from man into wolf that first time is is painful to watch because you can just see and feel and hear his body contorting and he's screaming and it's it's one of the more horrifying things mm. I can think of having seen. Yeah, that's so that's true, whole, that scene. I forgot about that scene. There's a he's whole sweating and growing hair <laughs> and screaming and just, it's intense. It is, it's his, really his, The intense. joints of his arms and legs are twisting and contorting and his fingers are t- gnarly and everything. Mm. You know, the yeah, same exactly. effects, to, a certain, to some extent, were in altered states. Didn't altered states use some effects like that? I think when so, he yeah. would uh, when he transformed into like the primitive um, primal man in altered states. Nobody um, yeah, that no, I do. Me. I remember that. But what about Scanners? That was a great horror movie. Oh, we yeah. forgetting right. about with the exploding head. With the yeah. exploding head. I mean, I know that guy. By the way, that actor that plays the exploding head guy. I know he's a friend. Oh, of really? The, he's a dad of. One you of taught them. him how to explode his head. <laughs> he's <laughs> one of the the dads at Emma's school. Isn't that funny? Oh, really? <laughs> Just as an there aside. <laughs> But getting back to the, you know, what's interesting about horror movies, it's, you know, you you think you can make a list of the essential films, but then as you start talking, you realize that that not only are there so many more that you completely forgot about, but there are, like we were talking about before, there are are other movies that are sort of borderline horror, you know, Mm -hmm. like horror horror in space movies, for instance, and there are a lot of great ones. And there are monster movies that we haven't really talked about monster movies much, everything from... from, uh, well, I can't think of any. For like Frankenstein, Frankenstein yeah. or King Kong or, or Jaws, I guess Kong. would would qualify. Right. Yeah. And, so. uh, and those are a little bit uh, almost B movie type um, topics, and so they they don't really fit in with the upper tier of horror movies that we've been talking about. I believe that your list of twelve top twelve at the beginning of the podcast was a pretty good com- comprehensive list of the very ultimate horror movies. Mm. But like you said, there are many many others underneath. So um, do we want to talk about Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2? I'd like to talk a little sure, yeah, bit about, right. um, since we're talking about The Fly, we could talk about how um, when they remake a classic horror film, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it works or it doesn't. I think with Evil Dead 2, it's not really a remake, but it's be- certainly better than the first one. Mm-hmm. The, the effects are better and it's, it's um, it had a bigger budget, obviously, and it was smoother. Um but you know, there was something about the original that had a, a down and dirty kind of, um, not quite a Blair Witch property to it, but there was something about its low budgetedness that added something to the fear factor mm. that I think the, the second one lost a little bit, as good as it was. Right. And the second one's more comical. It's funny. Right. I was going to ask right. that. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I haven't seen either one of them. So I have seen parts of them. So I'm familiar with a little bit with the look and the style, but I haven't seen them all the way through. And I was going to ask you that. Was there as much humor in the original? Not really. Hmm. I don't know. So. Th- it's been a while since I've seen the original, but now that I think about it, it was pretty straightforward. Right. Um, it wasn't until the second one that they really kind of let Bruce Campbell un- unleash and become this kind of crazy 
the crazy guy that we know. Yeah, I think you'll really like Evil Dead too, Ryan. I really do. Zombies have never really been my thing, but I guess I need to get into them because they're certainly the the coming thing. They're the big thing now. Uh, on Sunday night on on AMC, I guess uh, um, Frank Darabont um, has a has a new zombie series on the, on American Movie Classics, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That and looks good. then uh, there's the um, the Jane Eyre zombie movie and the Lincoln zombie movie are, are both in in development. Zombie is the new vampire. Exactly right. Um, like I said, that that that's, that's almost borderline so unrealistic to me that I have trouble being. I, I can I can appreciate the filmmaking and I I like movies um, like that, but I don't really get scared by them, and so that kind of disqualifies them mm-hmm. for me as, as one of the one of the primary things we look for in a horror movie is has to scare the piss out of us, right? Well, so let's talk about uh, the movies that scared us the absolute most, if we could, one at okay. a time. Yeah. Along the same lines of the the zombie theme that we were just on, the first movie that really scared me, scared me before I ever even saw it, which Mm. was Night of the Living Dead. Um, (laughs) It came out a year or two, I think, before I was born, but then it was re-released into um, theaters, I think, in the early 70s. I was still too young to go see it, but um, I have have three brothers and a sister. My mom took them to see it, and um, just the stories that they would tell of that movie after they came back gave me nightmares for months and I hadn't even seen it yet. When I finally mm-hmm. caught up to it, it was kind of amazing to watch the real thing and kind of compare it to how I had imagined it in my head. Um, yeah, and so what did you think when you saw it again? Finally saw it. Um, it was a little bit of a letdown because I don't think anything could have lived up to the weird childhood horrors that I had in my own head. But um, it's still a classic that I can sit down and watch anytime. Yeah, and you I, think that's maybe part of it that that these those kinds of movies affect us maybe more when we're kids or adolescents than they do when once when we grow up that fails to touch us in the same way. Yeah, I think so. Um, I along those same lines, I had well, you know, I already told you about The Exorcist as being the number one film that ever scared. It still scares me <laughs> as an yeah, adult. Yeah, too. I mean, it's just terrifying. It's really, a scary no movie. But the other one was, um, well, there are a couple of them. The um, the little girl who lived down the lane, the Jodie Foster movie when I was a kid. And then um, the other one that was really scary was The Shining. And that's only because it had, when I heard the tra- you know the previews for it on the radio when I was a teenager in high school, I didn't know anything about Stanley Kubrick or film or anything. So to me, I just thought that, you know, um, it was the scariest thing I could ever imagine, this horror movie with a chainsaw and body parts. And, you know, I, I really thought it would be scary. And when I finally saw it, of course, it was The Shining. So it's not, I mean, it's it's disturbing in some ways, but it's also just such a great movie. I've seen it like 20 or 30 times now. So, uh-huh. And finally, the last film that ever scared me, besides The Exorcist, was actually The Ring, the remake of The Ring, oh, yeah. which a lot uh-huh. of kind of horror purists don't think is as scary as the original but to me it was it's one of the scariest movies i've seen as an adult japanese movies and and uh, korean movies now really have a have a, a whole st- a new style of horror that i really appreciate um and i'm not i'm not so crazy about the remakes but i like the originals hmm. and how about you ryan what movie really scared you you know as far as being really scared i think i, I like I, I like or I, it's easier to creep me out and to and to and to get under my skin more with a psychological horror movie movies where people are are, are losing touch with reality yeah. really get to me 
and or, or um, lo just losing their minds. And The Shining would be one of those. Um, movies like Repulsion, or there's a great Robert Altman movie called Images with Susanna York. Yeah, where that's, she's, uh, that's a creepy movie. I love that movie. movie. <laughs> I love it. And it, you know, I think that's going to be a lot like, uh, it's, it reminds me of what, the, what I've seen so far of Black Swan. I want to come back to Black Swan in just a little, in a little while before we end this. Jacob's Ladder is a really good, uh, mm. terrifying movie. I love I love movie. Jacob's Ladder. That's yeah. one of my favorite, probably modern, so, sort of modern horror movies. Yeah, that's an intense movie. You know, it's those movies they start out in, with a sort of reality, and I, you know, I keep going back to the reality thing. I know it seems like I'm harping on that, I'm obsessed with it. But in, unless a movie starts out with some sort of a grounding in reality for me, then then I can't um, buy into it. But I'd like at some point for them to become hypnotic and detach from that reality. And when that happens, then I'm all, then I'm right there. You know, yeah. they've got me. Yeah. One of the themes I really like is the. Ten Little Indians paradigm of picking people off one by one until there aren't any left. That's sort of like my okay. favorite. So that's Alien and The Thing. Both those movies are like that, where nobody survives at the end. Well, Sigourney Weaver does in Alien, but in The Thing, nobody survives that. You know, everybody dies. The Thing is a great. I don't know why we haven't talked more about The Thing. It's amazing. We we do a whole podcast about The Thing. Yeah. Uh, theme of the movies where people are picked off one by one. The Final Destination movies are not bad. You mm. know, I kind of like those Final Destination movies. Yeah. You know, those? I have to admit that I haven't seen those ones, but I've heard good things about. I, I'm not sure which ones. I think some are better than others. And mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Wolf Creek. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but that's an insane bizarre horror movie that is actually really scary about that serial killer who kills every oh, yeah. single girl who's he kills everybody nobody survives even at the end when you think the one girl's finally going to get away he kills her <laughs> so, right i pretty much movies. stopped seeing horror movies there for a while because they they weren't scaring me they were not so i missed a lot of them even like the popular um eli roth ones and the so-called torture porn genre i'd sort right. of gotten out of them by then because it just you watch them and they, and they weren't scary um and i was actually surprised when i finally caught up with um the first paranormal activity which was such a big success last year I'd, yeah. I'd avoided it and then finally caught up to it on video just you know a couple months ago and it actually was really scary and I, I would have to call that the movie that has scared me the most in the last probably 10 years you're kidding it, it wasn't the kind of scary where I'm checking under my bed and turning on lights before I go to bed at night. But as I was sitting there watching it, it was very intense and just very, you know, fingernails dug into the, the, the armrests kind of scary. Wow. I think you'll really? like it, Sasha, because it's like it's a slow burn. It's a slow burn movie. It, 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 build, it takes a long time to build and you like that. You like the, the it seems like nothing's happening, but, but then it's got a creepy, eerie, hypnotic quality to it at the same time. Yeah, I, it's all I'm about less is more, and it's all about expectation, and then it finally builds to some to some shocks and some scares. But it's it's really very subtle. Hmm. The remake, or not the remake, but the sequel to it that just came out. A lot of people said that it, some people actually said it was better than the original. A lot of wow. people said it was as good as the original. I would say that it was neither, though it was probably about as good as you could expect it to be. They did a really good job of of trying to recapture what worked about the first one. Um, but I thought that it didn't work quite as well the second time because you already knew what to expect and the slow build became boring because you already knew where it was going to end up. So it just kind of, I found myself checking my watch waiting for them to get on with it. Hmm. And, um, they also felt the need to sort of explain things and sort of 
um, expand on the mythology behind it. And what was great about the first one was the complete unknown and not really knowing exactly what was happening or why made it much scarier. But to sort of try and give reasons for stuff kind of watered it down a little bit. Hmm. Interesting. But, you know, it was still decent. It, it, I, I actually hope it it's not going to, but I hope it I hope it beats Saw this weekend. So I just would would like to to each of us talk about movies that we would like to recommend for Halloween, like the scare. If you had to tell your friends what is a great, you know, people who don't really watch movies, what what would you recommend as the movie to watch over Halloween? I know we already talked about it, but I would like to go back and recommend Halloween this Halloween because a it's called Halloween, and uh, <laughs> it's a genuinely old school scary movie and. Um, it, it might not play to the younger crowd who's grown up on a lot of grisly gore and that kind of thing, but um, I don't know. It's the movie I think of whenever I think of the holiday. Yeah, and the thing I love about it, other than the fact that it's just great, every scene of it is suspenseful, and I love Jamie Lee Curtis's character, despite what became of her character in the subsequent films. Um, her kind of lonely, geeky, you know, um, Screamer is one of the best female uh, heroes or heroines in a horror movie. She is, you know, you don't you don't often see the girl kind of triumph the way she does through it, and not not because she's you know tougher or anything. It's just because she manages to survive. But also, well, but they they. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. They, she's vulnerable without being pathetic, which is great. Right. Yeah, right. she, she's not just a victim. She fights back. She's she's not as strong as her as as the person trying to kill her. So it's scary, but you know. Yeah. That thought that thought just went right down the crap. No, you. no, that it's was worth, that was worth interrupting you for, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> she she um she has she has fear, and the other girls don't. That's the difference between right. them. Like the other girls are really kind of sexually promiscuous, and she's the only one who um is is you know, worried or has any kind of um, mature sort of responsibility going on. Like she's babysitting and she's wants a conscience. She's got a conscience. She's got a conscience. Yeah. Um, And it's strange that he chooses her to go after. Um, It is strange because she's not his sister or anything like that. She's not, you know, Mm -hmm. sleazing around, but he, he definitely singles her out. And and maybe because it's, he sees he can't really break her, but he does try to kill her. Um, But, how much do we love too the fact that there's a pet there's a pedigree uh, 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 ancestry that goes back from Jamie Lee Curtis all the way back to Psycho with her right. mother Janet Lee. So a double right. bill of Psycho and Halloween would not be a bad way to spend this yeah. holiday. And, and as far as mother daughters movie, the mother daughter theme, we should mention Carrie too, right? Right. So let's throw Carrie in there as the third movie to watch. Um, Carrie is one of the best female you know, ass kicking revenge <laughs> movies that, that there, there has, that has ever been made. And I know it's sad because you don't really want everybody at the end to die in a big fire, but there's just something about that transformation when Carrie just finally decides meek and mild, sad little Carrie with these powers, when she finally decides she's had enough and she unleashes her fury <laughs> on the community, there's just something so like 
scary fascinating about that and it's i wouldn't say satisfying because you do feel sad that everybody's dying but you just kind of feel i don't like, feel so yeah. sad i feel really satisfied yeah. i don't feel yeah. sad at all <laughs> the, carrie carrie is the movie for people who hated high school yes and, and that's yeah that's stephen king too you know stephen king yeah. definitely was picked on and treated horribly and poor and yeah. it felt like a misfit and he really got his revenge with carrie what a great movie it, that is it's unfortunate that Betty Buckley gets it in the end, but you know, it's collateral damage and uh, it's worth it for all the people who get taken out. They totally have it coming. Yeah, and in a great way, in a great way. She just, you know, she looks around the room, something turns over and she just starts looking. I watched it with Emma and I was afraid that she was going to be a little creeped out by it, but she was actually really like, that girl's really doing it. She's, she's really kicking some ass. <laughs> so. Great. I think it, it, it appeals not only to girls who were put upon in high school, but even nerds, because it, it, it definitely has that, that meek, easily bullied thing going on. So yeah. I, I think it transcends sexuality even. Timidness is, an, is why we felt uh, on, we were kind of, we felt for Norman Bates too. You know, because he, yeah. we felt, we felt even as evil and, and and sick as he was, we felt uh, sympathy for him. Right. So if you take Carrie, Halloween, mm -hmm. Psycho, um, maybe Silence of the Lambs, um, these characters, um, they all kind of are these, you know, shy, introverted, um, you know, lonely, timid characters who become the fly too. And the fly, yeah, right. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah, that he had his timid side and his uh, his strong, powerful, evil side. Right, so I guess that theme keeps replaying in movies. I think this segment has revealed more about us than it has about horror movies, frankly. Mm, I think so. <laughs> things okay. that appeal to us. Well, that's the thing the about horror the movies, though. They tap, they, they tap into people's uh, psyches in ways that most movies don't. I mean, all, all movies, I guess, are sort of like dreams, and it's probably a cliche to say... On the and the parallel to that is that horror movies are are the nightmares. There are shared nightmares. But uh, in order to tap into our tap into the audience and really scare us, you have to get inside somebody's head. Mm -hmm. So they're really personal movies, intimate. And um, you know, speaking of psychology and all of that, I, th these don't necessarily. You're not going to find these in the horror section of your local video store, assuming you still have a local video store. But the entire filmography of David Lynch is mm -hmm. something that gets under my skin in a way that I can't think of any other filmmaker has done as consistently. I totally mm -hmm. agree with you. And I think you could do a whole Halloween just with David Lynch movies. I would probably choose Blue Velvet. Um, Eraserhead for sure. Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Oh, yeah. And maybe... Elephant Man. Well, yeah, Elephant Man's a little sad, though. <laughs> You don't oh, okay. want to be too bummed out. Okay. It's a good monster yeah. movie, though, in a, in a way. It's a kind of a riff on the yeah. whole monster movie genre. Yeah, it is. That's true. It, it doesn't get a lot of love because not a lot of people seem to not know what to make of it, but Inland Empire was extremely creepy, too. Was it? I still haven't seen that. It was a tough sit, it, 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 and it wasn't as beautiful as all of his other movies were, but there was just something elementally messed up about that movie. Hmm. Good stuff. He's definitely somebody you should keep in mind. I'd like to give a shout out to Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. And yeah. it has the added bonus of an acrobatic sex scene between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I might add. What's not to like about that? 
<laughs> so, but that movie will freak you out. It will freak you out and you won't be able to go to sleep. Just trust me. I'm not going to say anything about it because if you don't know what it is and you've never seen it, then I will definitely spoil it by telling you what happened. So that's it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of images in a way. Don't look now does. And it also reminds me of the innocence in a way, yeah. uh, the same mood, the same mood at least. You know? Right. Um, I have to admit that I've never seen it, but I would like to point out that it is now streaming on Netflix. So anybody who is in the mood to catch up to it, like I am, um, give it a look. Yeah, that's great. That's good to know. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a very strange movie, but boy, Julie Christie never looked better. She was so beautiful. I, yeah. I've pretty much talked about all of them already, but just to go back and because I probably some of our international readers are wondering why we focus so much on American movies. Right. Uh, there are some great foreign uh, horror movies too. And some recent ones that I would mention would be both of the wreck movies, the um, incredibly scary movies. I think those are really terrifying. And they also have sort of the same film technique as, uh, as paranormal in a way, only much more sophisticated because they're, they're handheld video, you know, it's supposed to be taking place a documentary feel to them. And another movie that's really scary is a French film called Il, which is, you know, them. It's a, like a home invasion type mm. uh, type movie that's really scary. They they remade that. I think there's an American version of that, too. But go with the French version if you can, because it's really scary. Hmm. Well, great. So um, that concludes our Halloween podcast. And we hope you've enjoyed it. And we will see you back here next week, same time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Three-Way Moviegasm Podcast, brought to you by AwardsDaily.com and LivingInCinema.com. You can reach us both on Twitter, at AwardsDaily and at LivingInCinema. We can also be reached by email if you'd like to write us any letters with questions or comments. AwardsDaily at gmail.com and Craig at LivingInCinema.com. Happy Halloween.